The Bizzle. Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. Oh, The Bizzle, thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. Burn the land and boil the sea. You can't take the sky from me. Alright folks, the Bizzle here with a quick pre-intro to my Bizzlecast special uh, with Manny G, which is basically just a Bizzlecast quickie. As you've probably noticed, I've started releasing uh, Matt and I's full 14 episode uh, commentaries uh, full length for the Firefly TV series, which we started working on last year. Took me a while to get out, but with the 15th anniversary coming up soon, I thought now is the perfect time. Uh, I definitely wanted to get Matt on after all this time uh, since we started to talk a little bit about it and talk back on the experience and so forth. Uh, it was originally supposed to be an intro before the second episode, The Train Job, um, but it ended up being much too long and I decided to release it um, as a separate uh, sort of a Bizzlecast quickie or Bizzlecast special here. Um, and I'm specifically dropping it before I'm about to drop episode four of Firefly, which is Shindig, because it, that's our first, you know, uh, jointly loved episode and the first episode where the series really took off and where our podcasts at the same time uh, really took off doing that episode as it launches into you know greater and greater territory in that amazing all-time great series. So hence the mention of the train job here. Um, so this is a standalone podcast. Hope you enjoy it and let's bring in Maddie G. All right, ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, take my love, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. Maddie G, welcome to the official introduction to the long-awaited Firefly full series commentary. Thank you. Good to be here. And uh, this took a while for us to do and even maybe slightly longer to get it out there, but it's good that we got it out there finally. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And uh, people, I already released the first episode because I wanted to get it going. I gave a little intro to the pilot to give people an idea of what was going on. But I really wanted to get Matt on because this was a very unique um, uh, commentary for me, Matt, because I had only done one full season commentary before, and that was Jessica Jones season one. But that was just me. And I had done some, uh, you know, co-commentaries. You and I did Man of Steel. We did Avengers. I did uh, some with my buddy Aaron Slavutin, et cetera. But right. doing a full season of TV, especially a full season of TV on a network schedule with 42 minutes where, let's be honest, there's like three to four episodes of normal TV content per episode of this show. And I just wanted to get you on to talk about the process, but also because we're just talking rapid fire the whole time, and it's just because the show is so amazing. I wanted you to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is easily, Firefly is easily, maybe, I'd almost call it, I feel like Star Trek is the, the sci-fi franchise that still means the most to me, but in terms of just pure pleasurable watching. I can't think of a TV show I enjoyed more than Firefly um, for, you know, the, the brief amount of time that it was actually on the air. Um, you know, it's only 14 total episodes in a movie, but uh, it, it's really top-notch sci-fi storytelling. 
it, some of the best writing in a TV show, certainly of you know of a genre TV show. It's some of the most memorable characters uh, that people still continue to want, even as we get farther and farther and farther away from the cancellation of Firefly and whatever like brief moment of renewed energy it had after Serenity came out. Mm. You know, but people still love this show. I've read critical reviews of other series that point out only could Firefly fail and still be considered a success. Um, I'm not sure. I didn't phrase that exactly right, but it was a failure in terms of viewership. And yet it is seen as a successful TV show because of how much impact it had and continues to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to get in a long discussion on this particular topic, but the money Han Solo made is very uh, incongruent to the quality of it. And uh, but, but the real reason I'm mentioning this, Matt, is because the portrayal of young Han Solo in Solo is very Malcolm Reynolds' version yeah. of Han Solo, um, which I loved personally. Um, so, guys, so I got Matt on. I don't want to keep him on too long. I really appreciate his time. Um, they, they aired the 14 episodes out of order. Of course, if you get the DVDs or you watch on Netflix, it's in order. So, originally, I was going to release it for the 20th of September of last uh, year, which would have been the 15th anniversary of The Train Job, which was the fake first episode, Matt. Right. Um, but now I'm going to be leading up to August 4th, uh, w- which was Heart of Gold, which was officially the final release of the episode. I will mm-hmm. say nine months after most of the episodes aired, they aired Trash the Message and Heart of Gold. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I figured, you know what? I will finally do this. We did have some sound difficulties. Uh, I, I have more control over the situation now. We just had some weird stuff too that, 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 that kept it on the back burner. But now it's really the perfect time to do it, right? Because with the ups and downs of the Star Wars series and the ups and downs with sci-fi and genre, um, uh, film and television, I, 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 well, I don't know. Maybe there's never a bad time to go back to Firefly. I think there's never a bad time, but what I would say, and I say this knowing this is probably going to touch off a little bit of a fight, I don't know that everything Joss Whedon does ages super well, and I actually think at some point we're going to have to have a conversation, not you and I, we as a society, about whether or not even The Avengers, which was a highly successful movie, Mm -hmm. didn't ultimately push movies down the wrong direction in terms of how we went from making movies as blockbusters to having everything had to be a franchise and mm. i feel like avengers kind of is the reason why we have the dceu why the x movies continue to make movies the way they do why the dark universe try they tried that why the kaiju ver like all of these verses that none have been all that good all of that is because of the avengers and so maybe we need to have that conversation point is Firefly ages beautifully. Firefly is as good now as it was five years ago, ten years ago. You know, when it came out, uh, it, it continues to just shine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not only would I not argue with your previous point, but some stuff that Joss Whedon does at the time isn't even that good. Um, and for me... Most of Angel and most of Dollhouse. Right. But I'm a, you know, one or two or three movie or property guy. Like, 
Taylor Sheridan because of Hell or High Water and Wind River, I already worship the guy. It's only two movies. J.J. Abrams, you know, after the Star Trek reboot, and then I love Force Awakens. That's enough for me. Joss Whedon, the Avengers movies, and uh and firefly like that that's enough for me um Mm -hmm. and but i i think one of the cool things we did talk about during the series as people will hear um uh is uh, the fact that this is pure what i would like to think of as pure whedon i don't know if you agree no i agree for sure and you know for people who don't remember when this was going on he was basically working on three shows simultaneously and he mostly let angel and buffy the vampire slayer the other people who were like directors and producers for that show and showrunners he kind of left them in charge and just sort of was the executive producer for those seasons because he wanted to devote all of of his creative energy to firefly Hmm. um you know this is him getting to take a look at kind of some of the inherent flaws of previous sci-fi franchises. He's talked a lot about how these are stories about people that the Starship Enterprise would fly over and not care about or even know exist. Um, you know, a, fr- a sci-fi show on the fringe of the universe instead of mm. based so clearly in the core of it. Mm. Um, you know, this was Whedon, I think, getting really to, to do – something really, really creative that meant something to him. And I don't know that he's ever quite had this kind of creative freedom again, except for maybe the cabin in the woods movie. Um, and even then I think he was more just interested in geeking out over how much he knew about the horror genre. Um, than he was at, at really kind of pushing the boundaries of creative sci-fi storytelling. I mean, if you look like at a sci-fi writer, like John Scalzi, for example, right. Scalzi can write about a lot of different topics, but he always sounds like Scalzi. And Whedon always sounds like Whedon. And so the fact that some of the best Avengers lines you could put into the mouths of various of the nine plus characters of Firefly, I actually see as a positive. Maybe some people would see as limited writing capability, but to me, that's a big positive. I mean, I... I have grown increasingly tired of directors and filmmakers where every character sounds like they could be in every other movie the guy has done. I say that of Quentin Tarantino. I say that of Joss Whedon. I say that a million times of Aaron Sorkin, who frustrates me the most because of that problem he has. Um, But, you know, there is something to be said, certainly for having your own style of dialogue. And I think Firefly and especially Buffy the Vampire Slayer changed how dialogue is written in TV shows um, permanently. I will say, though, man, Cap in the Avengers movies, still my favorite Cap. Tony Stark in the Avengers movies, still my favorite Tony Stark. I know it's not all Whedon. Yeah, I don't really want to have a conversation about Avengers. But, um, but yeah, regardless of how it's aged... It's clear, as we talked about in the series, that if they had just seen Firefly, Buffy, and Serenity, that probably would have been enough, right, to get him the Avengers job. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in terms of, you know, the Avengers is about assembling a cast and sort of coming up with snappy dialogue for a cast of people 
who sort of have to learn to trust each other. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the the meta plot of every Joss Whedon series. So mm-hmm. he was very much the right guy to do it. And mm-hmm. picking a guy who was already from the geek verse probably helped. You know, in the same way that picking Sam Raimi to do the first Spider-Man movie helped. Spider-Man. Because yeah. Sam Raimi isn't just beloved by nerdy film goers. He is a nerdy film goer. You know, he's, he's the guy who would go to a horror convention as a guest, uh, you know, just as a ticket buyer, if he wasn't going to be going there speaking. Um, and it, it bought the movie cred with that fan base immediately. Absolutely. And I'm only bringing up the next point, not to defend the movie, but because I think it's um, indicative of the vibe he tried and was so successful creating on Firefly, which is the thing I both love about Ultron, but is also a huge fault of Ultron is... After the first Avengers movie where they were just all coming together, he really tried to make them feel like a family in Ultron. And some of the beats hit to some people and some of them didn't. But you could almost feel that same feeling coming together of him trying to make them feel like a crew, trying to make them feel like a family. But there was something about the chemistry in Firefly, man, you know. And again, guys, you'll listen to the commentary and you'll you'll, you'll hear us talk about this a lot. And, you know, we, we, we there. There's the showrunner theory. There's just the actors all in the right place playing themselves theory. We have a lot of theories throughout the series, but for some reason, this crew all came together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even that they didn't exactly know was going to happen because Marina Bacharin, who plays, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I lost my train of Inara. thought there for a second. Inara, Inara Sarich, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay. Trim that out so that it doesn't sound like I forget shit idiot. all the time. Yeah, I all will, right, I'm but, just gonna yeah. start that whole sentence over. Yeah, go. Marina Baccarin, who plays Inara, mm-hmm. one of the. I mean, there's only eight characters, so they're all important. But she is really one of the most important. She's like more important, for instance, than Shepard Book by a pretty wide margin. Mm-hmm. She was the second casting choice. So you know, they had somebody else. They it fell through, and then it fell to her, and she turned out to be kind of perfect for the role. So there is always that kind of sense of luck. Mm-hmm. And she was the youngest other than River, and her role could have easily devolved into exploitation and boredom if not executed correctly, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, all right, man. Well, look, I, I want to keep this pretty short. This is actually coming before the train job, which is right. the... Uh, you know, we went in being like, this is the crappy, uh, you know, uh, supposed pilot that's not the pilot, but it's actually kind of fun. You know what I mean? There's some good stuff going on. Um, so what I thought we would do really quickly rather than overanalyze, cause we do that throughout the series is just talk about some highlights of the series other than the first three episodes having major technical difficulties <laughs> right <laughs> and, then, and then everything getting sorted out but we've get we get niska in the first uh in the train job yeah. and we get you know learning that there's you know sicknesses on the outer planets and them mm-hmm. always losing their job and so forth there's the, the you know there's the fight in the bar and so forth. Then we go to Bushwhacked, which isn't your favorite episode, but we do get the interview scene on the ship, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Her legs and everything right. yeah, above yeah, yeah. her I know legs. What you're about. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but then by episode four, we've got Shindig. And I dare anybody to name a show under this much pressure that's so weird that n- is able to pull off an episode as complicated and hilarious and great as Shindig by episode four. Yeah. You know, once you get through, I think we even mentioned this at some point in, in our podcast, once you get through the first three episodes, which are all a little clunky in their own ways, bushwhacked, it's the last gasp of the Reavers that I don't, that, I mean, Joss Whedon managed to resurrect them successfully in Serenity, mm-hmm. but by the end of Firefly, the TV show, I had long since quit caring about the Reavers, and I think he knew it too. So bushwhacked is like this weird kind of horror thing that doesn't quite work. The train job feels very much like a network telling somebody to make another episode and him doing it. So it's all like Firefly light. And then Serenity is a very slow moving pilot. I mean, it just it is. It takes a long time to sort of get what's going on. And it there's a twist midway through, which I'm not going to spoil here because you're all about to watch it again with these commentaries, hopefully. Um so all three of the first episodes are a little a little off in their own ways. And then you get to Shindig, and then you hit a run of episodes that's as good of genre TV as there's ever been. So we go to Safe, episode five. Again, Which guys, I'm going... one of going, my favorites. Yeah. I, I don't think a lot of other people like it, but well, I love Simon, and I love Simon and River, and I think this is the best Simon and River episode. It has maybe the best visual extended scene ever with the dance and Simon watching the dance. The dance is incredible, too, for sure. Yeah, um, and does great world building. And that's when Mal's like, you guys are a part of my crew, right? And yeah. you know, our main <laughs> criticism of the movie throughout the show is him and Simon would never have that fight in the movie because they've had it a million times in the show, whatever. <laughs> um, and then, Matt, we get to the episode where you and I can barely keep it together, which is our Mrs. Reynolds with Christina Hendricks. And yep. I... I listen to it now and I'm still laughing listening to it. I don't know how you write an episode of television like this. I mean, I, I couldn't possibly tell you. Um, interestingly enough though, that, that particular episode, that is a Joss Whedon episode yep. directed by the guy who played Ben Urich on, uh, the first season of the Netflix daredevil show. So, mm-hmm. um, for whatever that means, probably nothing. But I always think that's cool when I see uh, Vondi Hall show up again. Yeah, no, I mean, our Mrs. Reynolds is unbelievable. The The facial acting of everybody in it is on is perfect. Um, it's super weird. It, you start to see the cracks in these people's like characters. You start to see where they can become flawed and irrational. This is something we talked about that Joss Whedon does very well is he avoids making these people into archetypes. Mm. You know, he has moments where every one of them acts irrationally and or stupidly and is even sort of aware that like the character is aware that he or she is behaving in an illogical way, but they're human and that's how they're going to act sometimes. Um, But yeah, I, our Mrs. Reynolds is where the humor takes off. And then from there we go into Janestown, which is, Maybe even funnier in some ways than our Mrs. Reynolds, just because what else could you do in an episode where the main character is the thug guy but this? But it's just stunningly funny. Yeah, the horrible bounty hunter that's with them for muscle as a folk hero. 
and is incredibly stupid. I mean, Jane's <laughs> stupidity is part of what makes him admittedly far more endearing than the actor who plays him. Yep. And uh, really quick, man, actually, I, I, throughout the series, I give Whedon some credit, uh, some some um, trash for lack of minority casting but if you look at the main cast and some of the supporting characters he does a pretty good job i mean we don't see a lot of characters like zoe and shepherd book unfortunately mm-hmm. even in whedon's own marvel properties for example sure um yeah no i mean i think it was a major problem certainly with buffy the vampire slayer it seemed yeah. to me that there was not nearly enough uh uh like emphasis or effort put into casting um, uh, a more diverse cast um, until until right around the end. The last season, I think they started to introduce like a black woman who was a slayer, and then her son. I I don't quite remember everything, but towards the end, and and the same could be said of Angel. They started to introduce more um, minority characters, um, but mm-hmm. here you know we had. One of the main characters on the ship was a black guy. Marina Baccarin is of Brazilian descent. Now, she is very, very light-skinned, but, I mean, she is, you know, sure. a person whose family comes from South America, so I don't know how you don't call that a, a diverse mm-hmm. hire in itself. And then some of the bad guys, you know, we have Zoe, who is obviously played by uh, Gina Torres, an African-American woman, and... We have some of the bad guys are also, you know, this is probably the most diverse Joss Whedon has ever been. More so than the Avengers movies and more so than Dollhouse. Absolutely. Never talk about Wash and Zoe being together. Never talk about Zoe and Book never really talking to each other. Um, you know, I mean, uh, even sexual roles, you know, and there is all over the place. We talk about how Mal is kind of jealous of Kaylee, even though there's nothing going on just cause she gets to hang out and be, you know, physical with the Nara. Um, right. so much stuff going on. Uh, but Jane Sun is a, is a big episode because you think he's going to take a big, a ch- uh, there's going to be a big change with him, but out of, after out of gas, which is next, which I want to talk about briefly, you get Ariel, which she's immediately trying to sell out the Tams again. Um, but very briefly, out of gas, which was episode eight of the fourteen, as it was meant to be, is mm-hmm. one of those episodes to me that showed that they could have gone at least two, three, four seasons with this crew, and just makes me sad even while enjoying the episode. I'm just glad that we didn't have the intelligence to put the basically the origin episode in the first season because if he thought this show was going to go longer, maybe he doesn't want to pull the trigger on the mm. how Mal got the Serenity ship episode and how he assembled his crew. Um, but thankfully, he did put it in this one, and it is one of the loveliest episodes. I mean, it's not sad like uh the message is or heart of gold is a very sad episode um but it is it's melancholy and it's sweet and it's i don't know resonant yeah it's sentimental in a non-cheesy it's sentimental way. Yeah. yeah that's yeah exactly and then we start coming to towards end of disc two and disc three uh i think your favorite episode ariel and my favorite episode war stories back to back which only reinforces how much i love the series but again how much i am not looking forward to the fact there's only a few episodes after those two 
I, to me, Ariel is the best looking episode of mm-hmm. all of them. Just the, the depiction of the inner planets, uh, the way the hospital looks, the way the, um, the rescue ship, the, the, like the, the EM, the flying ambulance that they build basically, it just it's a gorgeous looking episode where everything is clean by design because it's supposed to be a core planet, um, mm-hmm. and you know it's 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 at the most physically attractive I think of all the episodes in a way that Shindig has a lot of garishness to it and a lot of ostentatiousness to the set design, but it's supposed to be false. It's supposed to be hollow and pointless. That was kind of the whole point of the episode. Mm. Ariel isn't as critical of the inner planets um, or of the people who have a little bit more in this universe. And so it lets the visual attractiveness of the world come through a little bit more. Uh, And then War Stories is fine. Uh, It's not one that I would probably rewatch if I had a choice. Really? Uh, I I like War Stories. Uh. I think it's funny enough, but I, I... you know, other than a, you know, I like the gunfight at the end, but otherwise, you know, the the Mal and Wash well, have it out episode. Here, I, hold on, l- l- let me just make a quick defense of of War Stories with Ariel, which is to me what makes both War Stories and Ariel great is while Ariel has the sort of CSI heist thing going on, but ironic in yep. war stories has what I call the funny torture, which is, you know, right. I, torture can't really be funny, but it is funny. But yeah. both episodes are really about the emotional journey of the main two or three characters in that episode. And what I find so brilliant about war stories that you never seen other shows is it seems like an episode where they're arguing about, did you sleep with my wife? Did you not sleep with her? Blah, blah, blah. But as I pointed out, and I still really believe, I think it's really about Wash not having male companionship. And you know what I mean? And like, it, it, and getting angry at Mal for their lack of relationship more than him really thinking he's with Zoe. Even the fact that that's in the air to me uh, is just, it, it's just really interesting. You just don't see that kind of stuff. Um, right. I, often. I, I think it's about Wash having to work through his own feelings of emasculation because his wife is so much physically more intimidating than he is. I I don't think he ever believes that Mal slept with her either. I think he knows that Mal is just shouting whatever he can to keep Wash from passing out and dying of blood loss, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I just I just love that they just let Alan Tudyk loose in war stories. I, I'm not ashamed to admit it. You know, I love Rogue One, I love K2SO, I love I love Wash. I, I just it just makes me laugh a lot. Um and you had to carry a lot of the load on that one. Um and then get we get trash or we get Christina Hendricks back. It's not as good as Mrs. Reynolds, but it's still Christina Hendricks, so it's great. And then we get the message, which is a very sappy episode, uh, which was sort of when they knew that the series was ending and they were channeling that. And so I kind of get it. But for me, it's the hardest to watch. I think I watch the message the least of all the episodes. Yeah. Um, you know, Trash is the second Saffron episode, or Yo Saffridge, as she's sometimes <laughs> called. It's very funny, but it it's not as funny as our Mrs. Reynolds um, and then the message is over the top in its melancholy and it doesn't earn it because the character it introduces of Tracy is such a loser and a dick that it's really hard to feel like I understand their, their, 
it ends with a funeral of a war buddy of theirs. And so there's the sense of the death of their past. I get all of that, but it doesn't feel earned because this guy doesn't do enough to make you to endear himself to anybody. Yeah. I mean, he's just a a jackass. So, you know, who, if he took 30 seconds to ask what's going on, didn't need to die in this episode. And honestly, if Mala just told him what he was doing, he also wouldn't have needed to shoot him. Like, th- this episode... You mean like Poe Dameron in The Last Jedi? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, you know. If you're going to ram one ship at light speed uh, into the bad guys, maybe ram all your ships at light speed Oh, by the, the way, Leia, who loves you, who's unconscious, has this big plan, but I'm not going to tell you about it. Or, or uh, whatever. Yeah. But, like, that. that's yeah. what hurts, I think, the message is... Mm-hmm. The music, which is intentionally very over the top and sad because Mm -hmm. it was the last episode that the music was scored for Mm -hmm. and it was the last episode that was filmed. So Mm -hmm. everyone knew it was done and everyone was bummed about that. Mm -hmm. That overshadows the actual emotional weight of what's happening in the episode. So Mm -hmm. again, the message I don't think is really an episode that I would probably watch again. I I like the beginning with the hat on the space station, but that's kind of it. But... The final two episodes, Heart of Gold and Objects in Space, mm-hmm. I would argue, A, show the potential for this to have gone numerous seasons, even though you can make arguments for it's great when 14 episodes, but I could argue it could go multiple seasons. B, hints at the really, really interesting, even more interesting than we thought, Mal and Nara uh, uh, saga um romance you know even more than we had seen up to that point uh and nara's response to him sleeping with nandi and leaving the ship and so forth what could have been uh with that on the show um is so interesting see heart of gold is the what are you fighting for episode we finally see even though it's it's a whorehouse you know it's a house of prostitutes they are living a semi-utopic life and it's only when it's disrupted by this horrible horrible rapist misogynistic guy that that they have to you know call in mal and company but like it's kind of reminiscent of shepherd's colony on on serenity there are little areas on in the outer rim you know that are trying to have a decent life for themselves and i know i'm more of a a, a, a partisan for this than you about what are you fighting for but this is for me it was very much a what are you fighting for episode and then of course objects in space is you know seeing rivers i don't know full powers or just her brains and a really creepy horrible bad guy that we hadn't seen before that kind of hinted the operative a little bit what do you think about those two episodes being the the final two officially heart of gold i think would work best as a finale which it was if if it was going to go to season two heart of gold where it would be where a traditional tv show would end because the i'm leaving serenity line is a great last it's like adama getting shot in the chest it's a classic cliffhanger um objects in space is super fucking weird uh and you can like that or dislike it i generally like it but don't love it it is definitely where whedon drifts the most into what seems like pure like philosophical conversations uh but it's all just very very strange um heart of gold what's interesting is there's something sort of meta about it because it is the most classically 
Western of all of the episodes in terms of the plot, like this attack on a whorehouse where there's, you know, hookers who are dressed up like brothel workers from Westworld, where there's guys riding in with a posse on horses. Mm. Um, And it's made clear that this world is like this way because a rich dude wants to play cowboy. You know, he, he could make a modern community with his wealth, but he thinks it's more fun to ride around and shoot futuristic six shooters on horses and screw whores that he controls and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry to use that word. That's the word they describe themselves no, as. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, so I, I don't know what the, what the meta like idea is, but like the idea that the Western sci-fi show has the most truly Western episode. And it's like that because a rich guy in the universe decided this world should be that way mm-hmm. is very fascinating. All right, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on for the sort of official intro. I was hoping I could read you a few lines here about the origin of the show, and I'll give you final thoughts about it. And we'll let people listen to it, because honestly, man, I've listened to these a bunch of times now as I'm editing them, and they're really, really fun. Um, So I hope people enjoy them out there. But indeed, we didn't develop the concept for the show after reading The Killer Angels by Michael Shara about the Battle of Gettysburg and the American Civil War. He wanted to talk about the pioneers and immigrants on the outskirts of civilization, like post-American Civil War Reconstruction. However, he also wanted to talk about uh, Jewish partisan fighters in World War II. Uh, and as I brought up, you know, I think we had sort of a, a Jewish sense of humor and given it to the fascists and the Nazis and the Germans and so forth. Uh, but as we talked about, this was the sort of anti-Star Trek that wasn't like dissing Star Trek, but was definitely like dealing with the people that weren't in like the center of the Federation, right, of, of Star Trek. Uh, yes. I mean, that, that's what I think this show was most, mostly a response to was Star Trek. I, I think that's the show that most heavily he wanted to make sure his show wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in terms of characters... The closest thing we had to to them before that, in a lot of ways, was actually the original Battlestar Galactica, where, like, the original Starbuck, that could be a proto-Mal-type character, um, you know, dressed kind of similar, had a cowboy kind of feel to him. You know, Mal is Han Solo, but not Han Solo. Yeah, I mean, you know... Uh, <sighs> Again, you watch shows because you want to see real life reflected or you want to see what you want to see in real life. And in that way, I think Firefly is more like Star Trek in wanting to see what we want to see in real life. I think Battlestar is way more the way people would actually react in such a situation, as depressing and less funny as it is. Um, I think that's certainly true. I mean... yeah. Battlestar is, among other things, an extended commentary on the war on terror. I mean, and that's not even interpretation. You know, Moore has said 9-11 influenced and how we reacted to it influenced him when he was coming up with the pilot and the miniseries. You know, this idea of a nation so traumatized that it affects every decision they make from there on out. Like, that's what's at the core of Battlestar Galactica. Um this is a response to Star Trek. It's a response to sci-fi's focus on the people in power. It's more like Star Trek, certainly, than Star Wars, because Star Wars has 
like literal mythology and magic underlying it. There's mm-hmm. no magic. There's no mm-hmm. super soul, you know, superheroes with special blood and special genes. None of that shit. There's maybe there are psychics if you're willing to have your brain hacked into pieces. Um, but it's basically just this is a society that's expanded into multiple planets. Here's how they are. Not this is a society where some people can move shit with their minds, fire electricity out of their eyes, and maybe turn into ghosts. Absolutely. And as we talked about, the combination of this and Battlestar really kept this entire genre alive, thank God, (laughs) Uh, for better or worse. Um, And so, yeah, dude, I'm so pumped. This is finally coming out. Thank you for coming on for the extended intro uh, for episode, I guess, two, uh, which will be coming out in a day or two. Um, It was super fun to do. I know it was a long time ago, but I feel like it's as appropriate now thematically as as any time. All right, buddy. Uh, Thank you, Maddie G. Uh, Thank you, Bizzlecast listeners. Enjoy all 14 episodes. We certainly did. Apologies for laughing through half of them, but I think you'll be laughing with us. And for now, the Bizzlecast is out.